My guest this week was the, was the guitarist and writer for the 1980s band The Waitresses. He penned their biggest hit, I Know What Boys Like, as well as the Christmas classic, Christmas Rapping. He wrote the theme song to the much-remembered sitcom Square Pegs and produced albums for bands both fictional and real. Please welcome the man who wrote the world's longest pop song ever written, Chris Butler. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for coming. All right. Yeah, the world's longest pop song, which is too too short. Now it's... um, online originally it was only set only 74 minutes long and uh now it's over five hours it's still too short so i need i need contributors i need people to uh add their bits if you go to um uh infiniteglitch.net um there's instructions on how you can su- submit uh, uh, a chunk and be part of um this ridiculous ongoing project um please do uh it's too short my goal has always been to include the sum total of all human knowledge and uh we're far short of that so uh uh help i need your help when you first wrote it and it became the longest pop song ever what did it displace was it in a guida de vida or no you know um uh, here's the thing um, I had to do my research. Uh, the, def- the definition of a song in the United States is a melody with a lyric. So instrumental does not count. You know, dum, 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 you know, 85 million minutes of that, or that thing that uh, the Flaming Lips did, uh, 24 hours, 20, you know, most of it's instrumental. That's not a song. Um, it, it, truth be told, uh, Guinness, uh, awarded me this thing in 97 or whatever, 90, yeah. and um, uh, I think they've retired the category. Um, so I have no way of claiming that it's still the longest song. But uh, you can have instrumentals forever, uh, uh, but that doesn't really count as a song. Uh, probably the longest song that I know of in my research was um, you know, Homer, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad because they were meant to uh, be sung as an aid to, to remember it, right? Um, well, one, nobody has a recording, and two, Homer ain't around to do live shows. So, uh, that, you know, that may be the longest, but um, uh, I, I can, with some confidence, say it's long, it's long enough, but I just contradicted that and say, no, it's not long enough. I want it to go on and on and on. So um, uh, this is a general call for submissions. If you hear this, um, please please chip in. Okay, I mean you can put the uh, phone book or a dictionary <laughs> or the dictionary. Well, that wouldn't be, that'd be fine. The way it works is there's a line that's because <clears throat> it's kind of all about the lyrics. It's a you know two three note melody, big deal. Um, uh, and sometimes you can fix something by. Dot, dot, dot. And then you fill it in with you. Uh, it's a couplet. Sometimes you can think something by just blaming your mom. So it starts with that. Uh, sometimes you can fix phrase. And then you bring your own experience, uh, life experience to it. That's, that's where I get the whole sum total of human knowledge um and uh it's it's a, a r- ridiculous idea but gets very catchy and people start coming up with 
phrases and they jot them down. And that's kind of how I wrote it. I, I, um, I had a song that had 12 repeats at the end. Uh, the song was called The Devil Glitch. And um, I played it for a friend of mine. And I don't remember whether he said it or I said it, but I'm perfectly willing to credit my friend Nick with that. But we both started laughing, and the problem with the song wasn't that it was too long, because I was kind of sheepish about the length. Uh, the problem was it was too short. And I thought, you know, well, that's funny. Uh, let's see if I can write another 25 lines, couplets. And then, okay, can I write another 50? And uh, after a month or so, I had 500 and um, plus. And uh, so how do you record it? Well, um, there was a system, uh, digital audio system called ADAT, uh, Elisa's ADAT system that was ubiquitous around the world. It was the first like semi-pro uh, digital format. Um, and uh, I, I, with a wonderful engineer named Scott Anthony, uh, recorded all 500 of these with a click track and an acoustic guitar background. And then we took um, chunks uh, five, three to five minute chunks of this and put them on uh, VHS uh, audio tapes because that was the the Elisa's ADAT format and um, mailed it to my friends all around the world and said, you do the backing track and we'll figure out a way of gluing it all together. And this was in the late 90s and computer um, uh, based uh, editing was in its infancy. Uh, Scott was a, a beta site for a program called DAW, D-A-W, Digital Audio Workstation. So uh, <clears throat> they, that company liked the idea of us trying to really stress their program by trying to do something ridiculously long because we had to piece all these things together. Well, at the end, it clocked out to be 80 some minutes, um, which was too long to fit on a standard CD um, because at the time a CD could only hold 74 minutes. And I wanted to also have the original four minute song. So we could only squeeze 69 minutes of this onto the CD. So people got cut and they got pissed. And uh, other people said, hey, wait a minute, you know, you didn't ask me, I didn't meet the deadline, I still want to do this. So thankfully, later along comes the internet and um, there's no time limit on the internet. So I was able to edit in everybody else's pieces and then other people um, uh, began to contribute uh, chunks over the years and we just keep stringing it together. And as I said, it's over five uh, hours long now still way too short so uh, uh you know help i'm looking for contributions and for the hell of it when i was done i sent it to guinness you know and they said hmm yeah maybe so then i had to do all the all you have to defend your claim so i talked to musicologists and all of this and people said you know uh, uh this restaurant one it's 19 minutes yawn and it's spoken mostly spoken word so that doesn't qualify and then uh, the whole uh, thing that i mentioned before about instrumental pieces you know you're you can string every possible version of dark star by the dead together and uh, uh sorry it's not a song is it um and again uh, homer's odyssey and um iliad uh, would qualify if, if anybody could remember how the tune goes uh, which they don't. So uh, Giddis said, okay. Um, 
uh, here's your award. And it was funny when the book came out for that year on, uh, on one page, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, the verse uh, uh, is myself and then on the other is uh, the Spice Girls. So it was, it was, it was funny. I wish I could have gotten them since they did Christmas Rapid. I wish I could have gotten them to do, um, you know, a chunk. But well, they broke up. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, fun project, goofy. That's kind of what I really like to do. I like to get a nutty idea, and if I get a laugh, if I tell it from somebody, to, to tell it to somebody, and I get a laugh while I'm stuck, I have to make it real. So. I try to have some fun with this music crap. <laughs> you you always seem like you're in, you know, a full mood to have fun. I, yeah, well, I'm trying, you know. Um, I mean, you know, none of this stuff is commercially viable, so, you, you know, you got to have some fun. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure at my age or from my demographic or whatever that, you know, there isn't anything else other than just having some fun with it. And, um, you know, just try to do good, good work, whatever that means, uh, and to keep going because, you know, what the hell. So you're a baby boomer. And uh, so you were yeah. around when rock and roll started, you were a little kid, but yeah. who were your favorite artists growing up? Oh man! Well, um, yeah, I got in trouble I, I, in the fifties. Uh, I was living in Cleveland with my parents, obviously, um, and I was uh, stuck on, you know, on uh, 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 rock and roll, um, uh, you know, the R and B stuff, and, and uh, um, rockabilly and all of that. And then, you know, I'm old enough to have seen Elvis on. Uh, um, uh, Ed Sullivan and, you know, my shocked parents uh, recoiled in, in terror. Uh, you know, this was the end of Western civilization as we know it. And I was very quiet and, and secret because I just loved it. Then I continued to, to do that. And, and I, I, I started to play folk guitar because it was the folk thing. You know, my, my road, the Boda, D minor. Shore, Ale, G, yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, but that, of course, you know, uh, more R and B, and then British Invasion, and um, the thing that absolutely absolutely ruined my life. You know, everybody liked the Beatles. That's no big deal. Well, my parents liked the Beatles, but then I saw the Who on Shindig. And uh, they did three or four songs, and well, that was the most ex exciting, crazy thing I've ever seen. These were these weren't no Beatles. Um, they were uh, tough and angular and uh, rude, and not particularly funny looking. And it looked like they had a girl on drums. Um, and next day at high school, everybody's like, "Wow, what is that?" You know, and I mean, he's trying to. You know, go down to our, our cheaper record store because you know we had, uh, had a little allowance and you know wasted that on I couldn't even afford stereo which was what I think it was three nineteen or three ninety nine and uh, mono was two ninety nine so 
Um, I already reckon from Ormano, but it's the Who that ruined me and got me playing drums, really. And then I played in high school bands and um, the music at our house. My mom was a piano teacher. So it was a whole lot of etudes. And um, uh, I, I, I desperately tried to play piano. I, I can do this. I can do this on drums. I, I can't play keyboards. And I'm really trying to work on that now. I just don't have the... Uh, the neurons linked up that can do that. But uh, Schoten's, uh, uh, an awful lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, the golden age of, of, of musicals, so, you know, music band, Pajama Game, Bye Bye Birdie, all of that. So the idea, you know, I'm exposed a lot to narrative songs, songs that push uh, a plot along or funny or do something um, to establish the, uh, the characters. They're, they're usually purpose written aside from just being lovely tunes. Um, uh, so you know, that was the music around our house. And my dad is a big band era, so a lot of big band stuff, you know. So you went to so Kent's- that, you, know, the, you know, I'm gonna turn it up, but also uh, at the time in Cleveland, AM radio was, you know, a, incredible force and um uh it was very eclectic you would play they would play rock and roll they play country they do comedy records whatever also from cleveland you could get cklw which was out of windsor ontario with 100,000 watt uh clear channel um uh, uh not the, the company now clear channel the definition clear channel is a hundred, uh, you know, uh, not a directional signal, 180 degree signal. And plus at night I could listen to WBZ in Boston. And um, there was a DJ called Dick Snyder, Dick Summer, excuse me, who somehow got the, the British records uh, before everybody else. And um, um, I wrote an audio story about this because it was so powerful one, one night, one summer night. I'm listening to Dick Seller and he's got this new record uh, by the Rolling Stones and it's called Rolling Stones Now and I'm going to play this cut and he plays Mona, I Need You um, and then there's a little bit of dead air and then he plays it again and there's a little bit of dead air and then he plays it a third time and then there's a little bit of dead air all years and as a kid lying in bed with a you know transistor classic story and then, and then it comes to commercial but um that was like wow you know three times on the radio so uh yeah am radio was 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 real influential oh i could also listen to oh shoot i forget the call letters but there were stations out of memphis that uh on a good night i could get uh, you know bouncing off the ozone layer um and you know, landing in my suburban bedroom. That was wicked cool. Some uh, uh, DJ, uh, either Baby Fat or Butter Fat. And he was the, a late night guy and he would play all this, you know, really great raunchy uh, R&B. So a lot of music going on. And you went to Kent State. Went to Kent State, yeah. And um, graduated Orange High School, played in a high school band called the disciples and we were really uh we were very good and we were kind of unique in the Cleveland era because we were one of the first integrated bands we had a black lead singer and uh, so again we uh, you know i did a lot of r&b and soul and um 
or some bluesy stuff. And uh, uh, at our high school, um, uh, we were the band for all the the outcasts, uh, the gearhead kids, because uh, we did a lot of like Ray Hot Rod stuff too, like instrumental stuff. And uh, we were the outcast kids and uh, black kids and all that. And plus, because we had a black singer, um, I could, uh, we could play down, excuse me, downtown. Um, uh, so I got, I got quite an exposure for suburban white kid. And the other band uh, was the rich kids band. They were called the Rebel Kind, and their parents signed for you know brand new Vox equipment, and they were they were handsome and cute. They played Rickenbackers, and you know we had you know used Fenders and whatnot. You know. Um, uh, uh, they they did British Invasion stuff, and they're they're the ones that played a lot of the well. In uh, our club scene in northeastern Ohio, was a franchise stuff like um, Hollow Blues clubs and uh, other venues. A lot of a lot of teen dances, um, uh, a couple of arena shows. There was the Chagrin uh, Arena, um, uh, Armor Chagrin Armory. I'm sorry. And they had package shows coming in, and, and that was fun. Plus, a lot of local bands would open for them, and um, got to see you know blues magoos and things like that up front, which was great. Um, so uh, I had, a, plus we got to play as well. But our 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 music was pretty uh, wild and scruffy, and um, our fan base, and we had we had a pretty good fan base. We're the, we're the rough kids, uh, the bikers. You know, we're, we're the band that played the uh, the wakes uh, when one of the biker guys killed himself, you know, on a motorcycle. Um, the other band, uh, the Rebel Kind, were, were the cool kids, and they were they were they would play the you know fancy clubs. So uh, we were we were pretty rough. And then yeah, I, uh, I went to Kent. Um, I was an okay student, but I didn't know college what, you know, um, I, I didn't know what I want, where I was or what I wanted to do. And I'm so glad I went to Kent because it was fabulous. Um, this is a not very, uh, uh, it was a rundown land grant college, you know, in the middle of cornfields, but they had a spectacularly great art department, English department. Um, film department. So I was like ah, knee deep and no neck deep, head deep, whatever, 10 feet deep in arts and culture and uh, all kinds of incredible guest speakers who come, all the Black, uh, the black Mountain poets, uh, the California poets like Gary Schneider, and you know, we had Bucks, Mr. Fuller, and uh, Alan Caprow, the, the guy who invented happenings, you know, Phil Oaks, and it was, it was fabulous. It was just so great. And I got to do all kinds of things, be in plays, um, played in a couple bands, um, uh, uh, I, I um, got to be in films, um, experimental films, and then bang, May 4th, 1970, and everything changed. And that was horrible, beyond belief. Uh, my friend Jeff Miller, who I was with, was killed. And um, that was, you know, that's the most, uh, as Jerry Castale says, 
uh, from Devo, that was the most Devo day ever. And it still is the most Devo day ever. And we're coming up, we're taping this on May 1st, recording this on May 1st, and in four days, three days, it's gonna be May 4th. And I get really weird about this time because it's terrible. Yeah, so, but the Kent scene and music scene have, you know, before, during and after, was unique and fabulous. We had a strip of like uh, six to eight bars and each one had uh, live music and each one had in the, um, uh, original music. Now it might be in a genre, like here's a country rock band or here's a blues band or whatever. But it, um, in the Midwest, you play three one hour sets. There's no opening band. You play, you know, you're there for the night. So, uh, uh, the length of time that we worked made you real good, but also the audience, maybe because it was a college town, um, ex expected you to write. They wanted to see something different. Now this is this is a strip that produced the glass uh, glass harp and the James Gang, and then the Cleveland uh, later on the Cleveland um, experimental bands like uh, uh, Peruru. I don't know that would 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 come and our band uh the numbers band 50 60 75 was a blues uh, blues jazz band unlike anything you ever heard and they're still going they're in their 51st year um uh, also uh, uh akron did not have very many uh venues or in fact no venues the venues were in kent on that strip so uh devo and um uh, our, uh after the numbers band it was in a band called tin huey and tin huey i mean we we played you know pretty much exclusively kent or sometimes cleveland that's that's really you know just a fabulous scene um and really good players and uh really good writers and uh it was it was a very rich very very wonderful still is akron still Akron rocks. Cleveland, of course, does too. You know, and because you know the music business has kind of collapsed uh, uh, in terms of of, of um, you know getting anything, getting a, a band, a local band to go up. You know, the last one that maybe came out of here were the Black Keys, um, and, and they did it by heavy lifting. They were on the road for easily 10, 10 years. You know, in the, in the station wagon smart because it's only two of them right um but but uh uh rock and roll is not pretty regional and um we have a, a real good rich solid scene uh with great players great writers great performers of course it's all skidded to um a halt through the COVID. so knock on wood that we can keep uh with the clubs to be there when, when things open up. But uh, it's a good place to be. Cost of living is 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 very uh, uh, doable and there's great housing stock. And yeah, there are places to play. And um, there's enough stimulus. You know, I, I spent 40 years in New York. You know, there's a hundred of everything and here there's one of everything, uh, but that's good enough. Um, it's, uh, it's a good place to be. Weather sucks, winter sucks, but, uh, sp spring, summer, and fall are glorious. And you played with Chrissy Hines' brother? 
Yeah. Um, I, and Chrissy. Um, with Chrissy, <clears throat> there was an apartment building, uh, 405 Longmere, had four um, apartments in it. Um, and we're talking 69, 70, 71, 72. Excuse me. Apartment number one was Jerry Casale and uh, his uh, uh, co Devo founder, uh, Bob Lewis. And then Bob moved out with his girlfriend and Mark Mothersbaugh moved in. Apartment number two, uh, two was uh, myself and my girlfriend. Apartment number three was Joe Walsh and um, uh, a... Uh, audio engineer, a, a stage manager who became an audio engineer named Bruce Hensel, who left and immediately went uh, uh, out to California and became front of house engineer um, for Fillmore West. And apartment number four was Terry Hind, uh, Chrissy's older brother. And Chrissy would come up from Akron for the weekend and and party and you know pass out on Terry's floor, uh, and uh, uh, I got to know her some and and uh, there was an attempt to at starting a band with her. I was playing guitar at at, at the time and uh, it didn't go anywhere. But then you know she she uh, she uh, first off she was she 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 got into. Uh, she was like the first person I ever saw with dyed hair and kind of Bowie glam, glam stuff. And this is, you know, this is Ohio, you know, it's, it's still flatter shirts and long hair, right? And 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 her and Miriam Lena, Miriam Lena, who first was the first drummer for the Cramps and then went on to her and um, Bill Miller started a Norton Records. Um, uh, and and um, uh, also, uh, in the you know at, at the local watering hole where um, 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 for Kaiser, uh, uh oh shoot, Lux Interior and Ivy, uh, they're from Stowe or Cuyahoga Falls, which is the next town to the north of north to northeast of, of Akron, and um, I, uh, again long hair and flannel shirts, and in comes. You know this this Bowie clad girl uh, with uh, you know leopard skin trousers and uh, Miriam um, was also you know very glam and uh, that 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 was that was pretty incredible. But uh, I can't say we're good friends. Where you know we say if I do get to meet her, she comes back here a lot. Um, you know we say hi. That's it. Small small talk. She's not a warm and fuzzy person, um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, at the time, you know, she was quite the scene star. She was, uh, she was something. <laughs> she was something, right? Yeah, I've seen the Pretenders three times, so I'm a big fan. What do you think? Uh, she's, the, inc she's incredible, right? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah, and Terry. Um, Terry and Robert Kidney are the two that started that 1560-75 numbers band. And the brief for them uh, was uh, Bob was a blues guy and very into um, uh, playing it very loose, like like uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf for the way Mighty Waters would. It's, you know, you don't do strict 
12 bar blues, you know, if you're feeling an extra bar, whatever. So it's uh, the playing was a lot of heads up. And Terry brought an improvisational aspect to this band where um, a lot of emphasis on solos. There's a reason why really great guitar players and horn players come out of here because uh, to fill that, those one, uh, those three one hour uh, uh, requirements, you know, you played a lot of solos, so a lot of really good players. So, so J uh, Terry brought the the jazz aspect, the improvisational aspect to the songs that Rob and the blues, the the classics, but what Robert was writing. So you had a sense of of um, uh, being uh, in that band, which I love and I still love, and I loved being in that band, I play bass in that band. Um, Everyone knew how the song would go, but it could change at a moment's notice. So all eyes on the band leader, and uh, if he decides to add an extra purpose, if he, if he decides to play with the rhythm and stretch something, um, it was all uh, musician speak is uh, heads up, heads up playing, because it could change like that. It was just thrilling. You know, you're most of the time you're hanging on by your fingernails. You know. So over the course of the evening, each song, uh, you know, the song may be the same, um, but uh, it's played differently every time based on uh, how people are feeling and how Bob is feeling and where he wants to go with it. And, you know, uh, it was it was really exciting and real fun and real unique. And that's what Terry brought to it. Terry is um, a wonderful friend and has taught me a lot about the jazz and the structure of jazz. And it's been a while since I've had a, a lesson. I, 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 I need another lesson. There's some, there's some things I, I need sorting out. I saw a clip, I saw a clip of Tin Yui playing I'm a believer at the bank in 1979. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that version of, uh, you know, Tin Yui is really something. Tin Yui is, was, if the numbers band was the best musical band I was in, Tin Yui is the most creative band I was in. Everybody wrote. Um, they, they were the eyeball kids of Akron, Ohio. They listened to the Velvet Underground. They they loved all the stuff going on at uh, Canterbury. You know, anything on ES, was not ES, well, ESP, but EG Records or Virgin, the original Virgin stuff, all that Canterbury, you know, Soft Machine, and then Crowd Rock. They loved Crowd Rock, Amandul and all of that. And um gong they love gong and um uh our version of i'm a believer is a cover of robert wyatt's version Robert Wyatt from soft machines version of i'm a believer and um which was keyboard led and uh yeah that's uh that's tin yui so um it's a song quite everybody knew but uh, Ted Huey was very uh, smart, very uh, eclectic, very erudite, and really good players and really good writers. And and we made one, um, after Devo got, Devo got scooped up, um, Warner Brothers came after us, and we made one flop uh, on Warner Brothers. Um, uh, uh, we, we, we could have benefited from doing the Talking Heads thing and say, when they were scouting us, because um, I had kind of just joined like a month earlier. When they were scouting us, we, we should have been smarter. And, and this is all hindsight, you know. 
we should have said thank you for your interest we're not ready yet you know we need i i need to be more integrated into what we're doing we need to write write more um uh, we need to set up our business uh we need to find management we need to get outside of the akron cleveland area go play columbus Pittsburgh, detroit whatever we need to build more of a fan base and then we'll come and then talk to us in about a year um that would have that would have been the right way to do it but that's you know the proverbial 2020 hindsight but it's a really good band it's a really great smart weird fun uh experimental data band um a little bit of a Zappa vibe, which I always like. Uh, say again, sir. A little bit of a Zappa vibe, which I always like. Well, you know, actually, actually, Zappa was too conventional. <laughs> you know, we were Albert Island listeners. You know, we 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 liked Ornette Coleman. Um, uh, the only the only you know commercial, uh, you know, Captain Beefheart, uh, Trout Mascara, not you know. The only normal quote normal commercial you know, a band we liked and we love XTC, you know, because of their brilliance and their ideas and um, you know people say Zappa because that's what they know, but really in truth no. Um, uh, obviously a brilliant musician and composer, but his humor was too like poopy peepy dicky, you know, and and we we were more. Uh, more ironic, more, more, uh, 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 oh gosh, you know, these, these guys read William, there was such oddballs for after they, you know, they would read, you know, Charles Bukowski and, and, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Burroughs, uh, you know, uh, uh, at age 14, you know, uh, so, so the reference points were, 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 were a little more, you know, esoteric and, way outside you know zappa was almost too inside he was, he was the one weird guy that 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 uh, uh seemed to stick you know have have a, a musical career you know no we were definitely beefheart <laughs> who you know the, oh yeah that's oh yeah we got to meet beefheart which was wonderful so but we recorded our album so. you're the uh, fourth person on my podcast who's mentioned captain beefheart I'm sorry, say again. You're the fourth person on my podcast who's mentioned Captain Beefheart. Parties are going too long. I, you know, we put on Beefheart to make everybody go home. Mm. Uh, 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 oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I learned about. I, I got turned on to Trout Mask by Jerry Casale from Devo. Um, all the early Devo stuff is all hippie, tricky rhythms. So, you were doing English Kids at Irving Plaza. Was that for the record? Was that a promotional when the record came out? Okay, um, once again, I'm going to go uh, um, as a uh, sarcastic uh, reviewer wrote, you know, um, uh, T.D. Ewing gets dropped from Warner Brothers, and then they come out with the most commercial song they could have, they could have, could have done. Yeah, um, uh, Irving, New York was the only place where we really had a good following, and uh, we would play Hurrah. Uh, two or three times a month, and um, TVs, and um, and one time Maxis. Um, but uh, Irving Plaza did us well. We could we could uh, 
we could fill the place, which is wonderful. Um, great venue, great venue. Um, and the song yeah, English Kids was me, uh, you know, doing a parallel between that Who, seeing the Who and Shindig, and seeing a clip of the Sex Pistols. You know, um, uh, the parallel, they're both uh, equally shocking and equally groundbreaking and um, uh, equally uh, uh, inspirational. So that's what English Kids was about. So my homage. Anyway, it was, yeah, it was more commercial. <laughs> Knuckleheads, that's, that's the Tin Huey story right there. You wrote, I know a boy's like, well, a member of Tin Huey, correct? Right. Um, I, I was a baby songwriter and um, uh, I was kind of just learning how to do this. And um, I was living in an apartment building, uh, uh, 103 South Portage Path. Um, uh, uh, next door was Devo headquarters. Uh, and um, uh, I actually lived there for a while after Devo uh, left um, uh, for LA, uh, the, the two women who were their video um, uh, crew, uh, Sue Masaro and uh, Bobby Watson, and they had an extra bedroom. But then I, I moved next door when um, uh, they moved out. Um, and uh, I borrowed a tape recorder and uh, I used to write with a, with a, with a little cassette machine just noodling on, on, on um, uh, my guitar and a riff and try to come up with something. And um, then I borrowed uh, 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 a TAC four track, 3340 uh, four track. And I came up with this, I was in writing songs for TUE, but I, 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 I was green and, you know, whatever came out was like a miracle. And it didn't, just, I couldn't kind of, you know, give myself a brief to write within certain parameters. It was like, you know, vomit, anything that came out. Um, and uh, I, I came up with this boys-like thing um, and bunged it out on, a, on, on the four track, <clears throat> plugging the guitar straight in. Uh, uh, and Tin and Huey is, you know, very eclectic and all of this. And, and I played it for the guys, you know, and they just said, mm, what the fuck is this? <laughs> You know, uh, uh, certainly not a Tin Huey level, and I was kind of sheepish about it. And um, I had I had uh, hooked up with my uh, friend who I knew, and this is 77, 78, maybe. Uh, a friend I had met in 1970 named Liam Sternberg. And Liam Sternberg had come back to Akron and was taking uh, uh, composition courses at Akron U. And uh, he and I became uh, friends and uh, uh, he was also writing songs and he had a friend named Rick Daly who had an A-track machine uh, and two really good matched uh, pair of uh, Neumann uh, U87 microphones, best microphones at the time. And uh, uh, we would badger uh, relentlessly uh, uh, Rick daily for recording time and uh he uh, he came up with a bunch of songs i came up with a bunch including i know what boys like and um i recorded i know what boys like in his basement rick daly's basement and uh patty i had known um 
uh, she was dating the drummer of uh, the numbers band, Dave Robinson. And Patty was in and out of school. She would, uh, Kent was on the quarter system and um, she would go to school for a quarter, drop out, go work somewhere as a waitress or go to Galveston, Texas or California or whatever, make some money and come on back and go back to school. And um, she was in and out of town all the time. And one time she was in town and I did, you know, at one time at, 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 uh, uh, about noon lunch hour at our local watering hole, Walters, Walters Cafe, you know, stand up on a chair and bang on a beer bottle and say, I have this song, I need a female singer. Anybody want to do it? And in the back was Patty. She's, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I had this little motorcycle and I put it on the back of my little motorcycle. And this was in Canton, went to Akron to Rick Daly's house. And she, she did her vocal and, um, Got Ralph Carney from Tin Huey, uh, the amazing, amazing, and now sadly not no longer with us, Ralph Carney, uh, to play the saxophone. And if you isolate the saxophone track, uh, the joys of, of home recording, you can hear a toilet flush because somebody upstairs uh, uh, used the loo. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's how. Uh, voice like carried out and Liam and I were, in, I was a numbers band and Liam was in another uh, uh, band and they were heavy commitments. The numbers band was very much a work epic. Um, uh, 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 Midwestern, uh, uh, almost a factory uh, style um, amount of dedication. You showed up, you rehearsed, you did, you know, you rehearsed, we, we played four times the, um, a week and rehearsed three times uh, uh, because we had a residence so didn't have to move our gear. Um, so um, the only thing that uh, uh, we could do was um, uh, Liam and I invented imaginary bands because we didn't have time to do it and put another project together. So this was Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's. <clears throat> he found a singer named Jane Ashley from Akron. And I was the waitresses. So uh, uh, for a while, they were both mythical bands. And um, the only thing real about it was uh, when Tin Huey would do a show for an encore, uh, we put on t-shirts that said waitresses unite as a joke, because it wasn't a, uh, a real band. And Patty would come up and we would do some we would be her backing band and we would do some waitresses corporate songs. So, and then when I moved to New York, uh, and was able to get a record deal for, I know what boys like and had to do a B side, uh, uh, put a band together and Patty came, uh, what the hell she had nothing, she was between, you know, quarters and, um, you know, we put, we put a New York band together, but with, with Midwesterners, because they play one hour, three one hour sets a night, and knew what they were. And if they were, if they thought they were going to move to the big city, I better practice, you know. So it was all Midwesterners, uh, expat Midwesterners, because they were really, really good musicians and knew how to work and were used to working. Yeah, New York, you know, if you play forty five minutes. 
and 45 minutes and one second, the audience's eyes are, you know, so, so when we would go to New York, 45 minutes, <laughs> we're gonna kill, you know, so, which is true. What means the way all the Ohio bands did so well in New York is you played a lot and got good. And um, what is the story surrounding Christmas rapping? Well, one thing led to another, and uh, Boys Life was released on a division of Island called Antilles. And somehow, I forget exactly what happened. There was a, a, a very glamorous label called ZE. Z being uh, Michael Zilka and E being Michael Esteban. Um, uh, somehow our contract got shifted over to Z. I, I believe it's because Michael uh, liked uh, odd, eccentric, um, uh, but also glamorous uh, uh, acts or interesting acts. Um, I didn't think we were particularly glamorous, but he liked my writing and he liked our performance. We were a very good live band. We were excellent, excellent musicians. And Patty, although no belter, was uh, quite a presence. She she could hold her own in a in, in, in her um, speak singing style. Um, so we were on the label, and our album was in the can because uh, Michael Ziggy had lost their distribution, and. Um, in anticipation of getting a distribution, this is now summer of 1981. Uh, in anticipation, Michael came up with the idea of, oh, uh, let's do a Christmas record. And now, the artist that he had was, uh, you know, August Darnell and Kid Creole and Coconuts. Um, uh, Alan Vega, you know, from Suicide, Lydia Lunch, um, uh, a, a, a woman named uh, Lizzie Mercier uh, de Croix, I believe, her, uh, a French avant-garde. These are not warm, fuzzy people that you would normally associate, you know, with the holiday season. And um, we were working very hard uh, touring because I know what Boys Like did, did the one thing that is very uh, much of a blessing is a lot of songs go boom up and then bang. Well, this one went boom and stayed at a plateau and never kind of, it never broke through, but it never went away either for a long period of time. So we were out trying, uh, anywhere we were on the air, which is mainly college radio, we were playing every college station we could, uh, sorry, every college town that was playing us on their college radio. So we went all over the country. We were working very, very hard. And this seemed like a, um, you know, a, 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 just the last thing we needed right now. Uh, uh, but, uh, well, I, 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 I had hoped that Michael would forget about it, actually. Um, but he didn't. So come uh, end of August, he said, you know, in, uh, thinking ahead two weeks in uh, September, I booked you into Electric Ladyland to do the Christmas song. All right, all right, I have crap. I got to come up with something, and um, uh, I, I, I kind of did. And I had a, a story idea, and um, 
the 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 story came from the fact that I am and uh, was I'm I'm in recovery now a terrible Scrooge uh, now a Scrooge in recovery. Um, Christmas was always awful at my house. Um, uh, I was usually broke. Uh, I had presents for all these people. A lot of them I didn't like. Uh, I just had a terrible time with Christmas, and I was supposed to write a cheery Christmas song. Um, uh, and I, I, I brought that and, and, um, one thing that was very positive was Christmas in New York is really honest to God, magical and, um, secular, but there is that one, there is a feeling around town of, you know, nice, you know, New York is not known for nice. Um, but uh, there was a good feeling, uh, whether it's the Rockefeller Center tree or the, you know, the Lord and Taylor, the Sex Fifth Avenue windows or the Macy's windows and, you know, chestnuts uh, in the carts and, um, you know, New, New York Christmas, you know, silver bells. It's Christmas time in the city. What's the, the city is New York. Um, so I, I kind of put all those elements together, my grumpiness, uh, the fact that um, uh, most of the people I knew who were freelancers, uh, uh, um, where everybody else has taken uh, time off uh, for, you know, starting like December 1st, uh, the freelancers have to take every call for every, every job because otherwise they won't call you in January. So it was, a, it was a, instead of a holiday time, you know, it was a work time and, or we didn't have enough dough to go back to wherever it came from, you know? So, uh, it, I, I put that grumpiness, but I also wanted to try and, and capture the, the, the sense that there's something good working in the background to make things work out. And, um, we rehearsed. We came up with, I wrote most of the parts, but we have fabulous, we have fabulous musicians. I came up with a horn idea, but it's full credit to Mars uh, Williams for orchestrating it. And we got our friend Dave Buck to play trumpet. Um, I did come up with a bass line that went dum dum ba dum ba dum That's about it. And said, Tracy, please, and uh, you know, run with this. And she did, and she made her own. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the bass makes the song. Um, she is known for that and uh, justly so. So kudos. Um, it booked this, uh, Michael booked this into Electric Lady, uh, you know, Jimmy Hendrix's studio at St. Mark's Place. Um, we had two days, maybe three, Wonderful engineer, co-producer, Michael Frondelli. Uh, it was the first time I had ever used a Marshall amp because uh, I was poor broke. I had, you know, a couple of used fenders that I was in. They had a Marshall amp and that's what I played on the introduction. And, you know, we kind of knocked it out where we, we didn't have, we didn't take much of Michael's project, but we were pros and we were going to give, give our all regardless uh that, that's bad English sorry regardless of um of the situation so we did and we turned it in and we thought oh you know it's okay it's pretty good he liked it and um 
and we forgot about it. We probably, you know, we're still waiting for our album to come out, you know. And uh, Michael gets his distribution in like October and presses up the Christmas record and um, releases it, um, you know, I believe late November. And um, we are playing in, in Rochester, New York. And I call home to my girlfriend and check in. And she says, man, you were all over the radio. I go, finally, you know, we've been flogging about boys like all, you know, and, you know, waiting for a record album to come out and finally broke, you know, broke into, no, 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 it's your Christmas song. What, oh, that? Oh yeah, it's all over the radio. She said, "Dang!" So we learned it, relearned it uh, at Soundcheck, and played it that night uh, with Patty reading the lyrics. Because one, there's so many, and two, she only had to get them right once. Right? You didn't, you, you didn't have to memorize them, um, uh, and it stayed in our repertoire, you know, until we broke up, pretty much. Um, you know, so and, and it did pretty well that season and the season after was uh, the Christmas, uh, Michael's Christmas record came out the following year, but the song was still on it. And it had a, you know, a good two or three year cycle and then it kind of died, you know, and went away. And maybe 10 years later, it began to be played again. And um, particularly bizarrely in England, it's more popular in the UK than it is here. I don't know. Um, and you had to change the yeah. lyric, right? You had to change one lyric of the I'm store. Sorry. You had to change one lyric. The store where she goes. Oh yeah, well yeah, the yeah, and the Spice Girls did you know their cover version, and and um, thankfully you know that um, um, that's that paid the rent for quite a while. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure uh, why it's more popular in the UK, but it's 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 a th it's a thrill, and so you know, I, I I'm I'm I, I'm grateful and floored by by it. Every year it comes around, and every year I thought this is it. You know, it's it's past. It's it's going to be over, but it seems to keep 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 going. And you know, thank you. Um, and uh, uh, people say wonderful things like it's not Christmas until I hear da 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 da. And I have to say, you know, I'm usually in a grumpy mood still, but I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm working <laughs> on it, you know. And um, uh, maybe I'm in the mall or something, you know, buying something for somebody I don't like, but I have to do it or whatever, you know, or I'm driving in my car and, you know, that song comes on the radio and it roars, it roars out of, out of a car radio and and it just smacks me around, you know, and says, all right, blind up, man, you know, it's Christmas. And I often wondered if I if I was paying it forward to, you know, kick my ass over here to 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 get in the mood. And um I, I I kinda don't know why why it's 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 popular. I mean it has a lot of little catchy bits and and if I read other people complain about it, you know, it's either their favorite or their most hated Christmas song, that's okay. Um but I I, I I've been trying to figure out why. And maybe one of the reasons it it, it connects is people kinda do wanna 
want to have a sense that um, there is something good going on in the background working for you, even if it's only one, you know, time of year. And uh, if, if, if that's the reason, that's okay. Or, or you know, people can relate to the, to the stressed character just wanting to not do it and, and uh, not really grumpy because I really softened in the lyrics. You know, she's complaining, but she's also, it is a you know, favorite holiday. I just don't have the time. I'm frazzled. I'm a New Yorker. I'm trying to make rent. Uh, uh, you know, I can't, I don't have enough dough to go back to Ohio, you know, to have holidays with my uh, parents or, or, you know, siblings or whatever, you know, I'm stuck here and, you know, I'm just going to chill. I just, you know, the New York life is frantic and wonderful and, but it's, it's high paced and, and, um, busy, 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 busy. And you know, it's exhausting. And this character just wants to unplug and, um, something in the background, you know, gift of the Magi, Oh, Henry kind of a force. You know, an irony uh, uh, is, uh, or just a gracious spirit is 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 bringing things together, and you know, maybe that's that's what people get out of it, and a damn good baseline. Um, I don't know okay. if you listen to uh, reaction videos, or if you've ever seen any reaction videos on YouTube, where they play a song for somebody who's never heard it, because they I've I was doing some research, so I put on. I look for the wait- uh-huh. wait, some waitress songs, and there's this one girl, and there's she's a teenager, and they played Christmas rapping for her for the first time. And, uh-huh. she, and the first thing she says is, "Oh, this is a Christmas song I can bop to," which is how the young kids say "dance." And uh, yeah. and she's like, "Oh, the bass, this song's got uh-huh. a great." And then she's like, "Oh, this is like an anti-Christmas song." And then when it comes to the end, you're like, "Oh, I get it." So the whole thing you start thinking it's anti, but then no, everything works out at the end. It, it, it's you know the, the word rap or rapping with a W is a double pun, right? Yeah, it's it's a it was a pun on Curtis Blow song, but it's also it's wrapped up in a neat little bow right at the end that all circles around. So it leaves you with a you know you can start out as a sourpuss and it plays to the cynics, and then it's it says you know you can be as cynical as you want, it's still going to work out okay. Right, right. So it's great. I, I did not. I did not see that reaction video. I, I, I love those in general. Those two black guys are just fantastic, man. They're you know, yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. But I, I, I I'd like to see that because that's that's very cool. And then there was yeah, an older woman who to it. Yeah, and there was an older woman who listened to uh, I know what boys like for the first time and thought it was like a post. It's a feminist. Uh, Anthem, but then I read your I read uh, an art article with you, and you were saying it was just like you got as a pretty girl at you at her pizza place or something like that, and yeah. she went with the better looking guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually pretty pretty angry. For me, yeah, it's what's the who the guy's incel right <laughs> involuntary uh, uh, celibacy. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it does not have a very uh, uh, nice uh, uh, origin Back, yeah. Back um, <laughs> story, but uh, I, and I did find it kind of bizarre and ironic that it did become kind of a feminist anthem. 
But the flip side of the single, No Guilt, is my reaction to realizing that, oh, you know, one, I made this woman a cock teaser and um, that's kind of uh, angry and that only that only portrays one part of a, a woman's personality, the generic woman's personality or my friend's personality. If I was going to keep my female friends, I better try and, you know, change it and broaden who I'm writing about. And so that's where the No Guilt song came up. And um, as, a, as, 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 a, as a reaction to it, but it also sets the stage for um, uh, the rest of the songs, who, who the character is in the rest of the songs is going to be much more uh, multi, multifaceted. And um, uh, I was, I was uh, charged with the responsibility to try and get it right. Um, uh, big deal to me, a man is writing these songs. Well, you know, I don't care. Shakespeare wrote, you know, women characters, everybody writes women characters, you know, people that find it unusual. I don't think it's unusual. Um, but I, I, I certainly had to do my research and ask my women friends, you know, here's this situation I'm thinking about writing out. If I have the character react in such a way, is it truthful? Um, is it funny? Is it ironic? Um, or is it just some male? Is, is it a typical male seeing the way a reaction would be? Because I'm trying to get it right. And, uh, you know, that, that led me more um, away from the, I, the, the, the really narrow, um, uh, persona of, of the boys life one and, and into a whole other much richer, much richer, um, place, uh, to draw, uh, uh, stories and narrations and songs from. And, you know, I learned a lot about women, never enough, of course, but, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's nice to be thought of as a male writer who either got it right or at least tried to get it right. Conversely, I've had ultra hardcore feminists, um, uh, really object to, to, uh, the, uh, not, not the character or the portrayal, but because I wrote them and, um, I always thought that was a little harsh because if you, if, the, if, if one of, if one of the aspects of feminism is to change us, um, I was one of those guys who was trying to get it. And maybe I had no business, you know, maybe I should have left it to the Ani DeFranco's or, well, that was my job though. We, we it was, that, that was a, I was on a label. I had to write songs. I had to relate to to people, and I had stumbled upon or limped into this particular subject matter, and I had to, you know, follow through with it. And I had a woman front person who was a very good actress and could 
could say her lines with conviction and um also uh, uh, you know a lot of it was her a lot of it was conversations from patty and and um you know because i wasn't trying to put words in her mouth i mean i was trying to put words in her mouth literally but but you know um there were very few songs that she that we did not discuss the 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 character and whether it fit and whether it was right for her the one objection i remember she did is she you know she was you know black irish catholic and uh she was a pretty wild party girl but at her heart she's a little catholic girl going to a, you know wearing her plaid skirt and going to catholic school and there was a lot called, you know, I, um, I want to make a fool out of God. Uh, uh, my dreams, my dreams are to find a cure for irony and make a fool out of God. And she kind of uh, uh, didn't feel comfortable about saying that. Um, but that's pretty much, that's pretty much, uh, I think, the only thing that she really objected to. She also was a, a good wisecracker. Um, you know, I remember backstage one time, she's trying to, in a mirror, trying to get ready to go on. He goes, oh, man, everything's wrong if your hair is wrong. I go, ah, oh, that's gold. That's gold. So I, I wrote a song, you know, called Everything's Wrong But My Hair Is Wrong, because that's like brilliant. That was a gift. Thank you, Patty. And you wrote the theme song to Square Pegs and appeared in the pilot. We were coming to the end of a tour. Uh, three weeks, maybe, and we were in Washington, D.C. Um, we were real tired and smelly. And uh, the morning when we were due to go back to our home in New York City, and we were looking forward to home-cooked food and clean underwear and not being in a van, I received a phone call. And it was a woman named Ann Beats, and she was at Judy Belushi's house, um, John Belushi's, uh, uh, late, the late John Belushi's wife. And they had heard a song called I Know What Boys Like. And Ann had said, I got to get this band to be in my show. And, um, as our first musical guest, no mention, no mention of a theme song. Um, and back to New York uh, with our gear and, uh, okay, we're gonna go be on a TV show in um, LA. Uh, is everybody game? Is everybody in? Yeah, Dan said. Okay, so we go, we, we go to the airport and she had said the tickets were prepaid. Um, they were not. Uh, we, I had a, a, a credit card, so I paid for the tickets and we went there and Anne met us at the airport and she was very, very high strung. That's being diplomatic. Um, uh, and she said, first thing, she said, where are your instruments? Where are your instruments? You didn't say anything about instruments. Um, why are you going to write the theme song? So what, what, what theme song? I think we're doing like, you know, a lip sync thing, you know? Uh, and uh, 
this went on through the, through the day, um, the next day. Um, we took off at two and it's, you know, whatever, three in the afternoon. He said, yeah, I booked you into Motown Studios tonight at seven to record the theme song. You know, we'll run your instruments. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, now the band's tired or wants to party. They're down by the pool at Sunset Marquee, and I'm in my room. You know, I, I I'm in my room. I am fried, man. I am, I am fried. And somebody, one of the uh, people from Embassy Television, the TV minder, a minder rep from the production company that was doing the show, scored me a, 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 a acoustic guitar and. Yeah, you know, and I got a legal pad, and I'm trying to come up with something, and I had a little riff, and you know, a thing, and um, the band's down by the pool. I want to be by the pool. I want to sleep, and um, uh, I come up with this thing, and you know, a van comes and takes us to the studio. You know, it's Motown West. Wow, you know, wow, Motown West. This is a famous recording room. And I teach the band this thing because you only got to do 30 second spots. Oh, sorry, 30 and then a one, one minute and then a one minute 30. So we had an intro and then a couple um, uh, uh, lyric lines that I had come up with. And we worked it out real fast and we roll tape and we're, we're done. Um, about 10 or 11 or whatever we have to wait around because the, the shoots the next day and um they were still using uh, this is pre-digital era it was all uh playbacks on a set were analog and you had to put what was called a pilot tone on the tape that the sound um a person at the at the shoot would, would be using so we had to wait uh, for that and so that's roughly midnight to one um we kind of one or two uh we kind of get back to our to our rooms and there's a note from ann saying okay you have a three o'clock call three o'clock uh a.m oh uh, that gives us like an hour hour and a half um uh, because uh, the shoot was in um, uh, Norwalk, California. It was completely uh, the other side of, of LA. And uh, the van had to go make other stops to pick up crew because they had a 6 a.m. call, um, which is standard for, for, for Hollywood or TV. But because of the distance and the, you know, so I, I had either, I think I, I took a shower and maybe I was able to sleep an hour and, uh, you know, van comes and we're there. And what there is, there was a, um, uh, that abandoned, but, uh, a disused high school that was used for, um, you know, TV shows and films as, a, uh, uh, as any kind of interior, um, uh, high school. And they had a gym full of uh, child actors, and um, we get there at six, and uh, you know we're we're obviously 
cross-eyed with fatigue and um you know we do a wardrobe thing and you know, all all the things we get our script and the script is one page you know and um uh the gymnasium is filled it's a pep rally scene and uh, um the the director gets up and with a bullhorn goes uh, uh i forget her name maybe it was i i forget her name and she says hi um i'm da -da -da -da. i'm your director all you extras uh i want you to know and crew that i am the queen of the retakes she announces and and the crew goes because they know what that means they're all experienced that means they're going to work really late which means they're in golden time which means double or triple union scale it's a union shoot and so they're all happy uh and we're like because uh, you know that means they're going to take forever to get their shots and that's what happened they would set up to you know in one part of the gym and do uh you know think about it you know uh, then the director would change her mind, and so then it had to take another, break everything down, and then set up for another angle shot. And if they got something that was great, but she would do, you know, ten or twenty takes of something. And this went on all afternoon, and finally about four o'clock, um, you know, there was a, we were there was a call for us. Um, but uh, just before we went on, Anne, who had been completely uh, 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 the most uh, hyper and animated, and uh, you know, uh, I just took it as being great, great concern for her show and how hard it is, and you know, her name's on this, and and Anne had a Anne was a very well-known comedy uh, writer, uh, original. Um, uh, 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 Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, yes. Yeah, Saturday Night Live. Uh, she specialized in writing things for Gilda Radner and and Bill Murray, uh, the the nerd sketches and uh, a lot of other things. Um, she was she had a lot at stake. She had a rep, and um, this was a big deal. She was trying to do a a, a, a teenage comedy show, um, kind of you know update of Dobie Gillis. You know, she had her Maynard character. This is really dating me, but you know, Maynard and she Krebs character and her Dobie character and the rich kid character and you know uh, all of this and and trying to do trying to bring a new wave music and attitude to a high school comedy show and a lot of pressure and she was getting no joy from CBS and uh, the stress on her must have been well visibly uh you know crushing but just as we were getting ready to go on suddenly her character changes so she gets real hard show business she's there with the guy the same guy that got me the music guitar the representative from embassy pictures and they're like there is business like this business like can be complete character change and they shove a piece of paper in front of me and say okay <clears throat> you need to sign away your publishing uh, on uh, the song that you wrote uh, or that you and recorded for this theme song. And I knew enough about uh, 
uh, this is traditional, by the way, in TV, that you give up uh, publishing. But I, uh, I knew the game, and I said, no, I, I, I refuse. Uh, you're, uh, you know, basically cheating us out of some some decent revenue if the show goes on the air and or has has a life for the fatigue and uh, the work that we put in and the work that I put in. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be complicit in my own, um, uh, you know, being cheated. And they basically uh, held a gun to my head and said. You know, if you don't do this, um, we have a whole group of lawyers who uh, will sue you and there will be no shoot. The shoot will be dead. The pilot will not be made. Um, you will uh, be tied up in litigation forever and ever. And uh, there were other things. So we did all of this. Uh, stuff for you um uh i guess i can say it. we gave some of your members drugs uh and is quoted apparently in showing up uh, to some of the band members of uh, a hotel room with uh, two six packs and a bag of weed in her um mouth uh she certainly didn't show up in my room uh I don't didn't don't do drugs, but I would have liked a beer. That would have been nice. Um, so basically, they scared the shit out of me, <clears throat> and I signed, and uh, we did our bit, and uh, we looked like we were having a good time, and uh, we were pros and uh, maybe 10 takes, uh, maybe less. Um, we did our, 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 our thing and uh, they were they did a wrap relatively early, maybe six, seven o'clock, maybe eight o'clock. We had a, 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 a red eye flight booked for us um, at like 11, 12 LA time, uh, back to New York. I put us in a, a a van, another van, took us to the airport, went to get our tickets. Once again, they were not paid for, as promised. Um, I paid for them with my credit card. Uh, we flew back uh, to New York and collapsed. And uh, that was the only time, I mean, there were a lot of skeevy, there's a lot of skeevy stuff that goes on in the music business. Um, and everybody I'm sure you've ever talked to has all kinds of tales, but for the most part, I and we were, were, were treated pretty well. Our record company was decent with us and, and really worked hard. Um, there were the occasional stiff, uh, we got stiffed from clubs every now and then, and a gun or two were pulled, um, and when it was time to get paid, and the question of, of what our contract was and what we're, we were going to get uh, was decided rather quickly. Um, but that was the one time that I could really, you know, maybe if, if our band had stuck around more, there would have been more, but that was the one time when um, I uh, uh, was truly screwed um, by uh, uh, television people. 
uh, or industry people. And um, uh, I think I've made, uh, uh, because we shared, even though I wrote the song, we shared authorship, you know, uh, uh, copyright to, to uh, for the writing, because I had to give away the publishing. It's usually 50 50 folks. That's how it works. 50% for the writer and 50% um, royalties for the publisher. And um, uh, the writing was, uh, I, I think, individually split, you know, five, six ways. You know, I, I think I made maybe $500 over, over the decades um, uh, after the, the show was produced. Um, I, and I tell this story for knowing that um, May 1st, that just what, two or three weeks ago, Ann Beats passed away. And Ann Beats was um, uh, still going strong, I believe, as a writer and an uh, academic teaching uh, comedy and comedy writing at various universities. And I just now spent the last five minutes speaking ill. I realized that. Um, but that is the truth of our, my experience. Um, I can completely empathize with uh, and about what it would take to get her show to happen and that she would do anything and everything necessary to um, get her show made and on the air. Uh, that said, uh, that was not a fun experience. And um, it felt uh, brutalized and definitely ripped off. Um, but people love the show, you know, and relate to the show. And here I am, you know, once more being the grump and, you know, telling a bad story about something that other people love. So, um, well, that show is. <laughs> so you had a better time on uh, two drink, two drink minimum. Two drink minimum. Absolutely had a better time. Um, uh, Tini Huey's keyboard and guitar player and co-writer, my partner, Harvey Gold. Uh, when they the whole band moved after uh, Warner's dropped us, uh, they, uh, they moved to Upstate uh, uh, Woodstock uh, area. I moved to Manhattan. Ralph uh, Carney moved to Brooklyn. But Harvey became a television producer, and he did a lot of work for uh, Comedy Central, uh, Caroline's Comedy Hour, and uh, the second season of a show called Two Drink Minimum. And uh, he hired me to be the band leader. I did my uh, Paul Schaefer thing uh, for one of the shows. Jake Johansson was the uh, host, a compare. And uh, it was a comedy show filmed at Irving Plaza. And I put a band together, <clears throat> excuse me, it was Ralph Carney and uh, two friends from Hoboken where I was living. Um, uh, uh, Jim Dillman and Eric Parker on guitar, Jim on bass, me on drums and um, uh, Ralph on uh, horns and reeds. And uh, we had a ball doing this television show. And, you know, you would, you would do, it was a half hour show. 
and we did a th themes and we did you know ends of what they call bumpers like maybe getting that right you know where you go to commercial or and then you come back from commercial the band is playing so we had you know a list of like 15 or 20 you know short short weirdo snippets of music to play and um we would do three show three or four sometimes six shows a day it was again it was a really um uh early uh call and uh they're half hour shows but you know that takes longer uh, uh to, to do it do stops than editing and set change but um uh it was it was really fun it was really fun and very much on your toes because uh you know harvey's the direct harvey is directing this and all the cues have to be tight and they were it was kind of like soap operas in that they didn't like they didn't want to do retakes you know if the, you know, the band only fucked up once and they allowed us to do um a retake you know when when jake announces that now oh, we're gonna you know whatever you know let's hear it from our sponsor you know and we didn't and we missed our cue and um we came in late and they looked at the uh, out of the truck they, they looked at the video and said you know yeah we could edit it but no it's just do it again so that was the one time but man it was it was it was like boom 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 you know uh on your toes be ready for for harvey would yell kill the man in my head in my headset and um bang well you know uh, uh we were right up right there right away it was it was fun it was it was definitely nerve-wracking but it was fun and um, I can't remember, you know, I think they had three comedians doing 10 minute sets. That wouldn't work out for a half an hour. But, well, they were stick between Jake and um, uh, his writing partner. Uh, and there was some stick back and forth between the band. You had to have that, right? You, you had to have banter and, uh, you know, uh, interaction with the host. Um, uh, so maybe, maybe it was four, four comedians, I'm not sure. Nah, you would be right, wouldn't it? Eight minute sets, ten minute sets. But uh, I, uh, the one I remember was Elaine Boozler, and, and she was extremely funny. And um, uh, uh, Harvey was very much into the comedy scene. I, 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 I didn't know these two from Madness, but it was, a, it, it was except Elaine Boozler. Um, um, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, I still have a, you know, uh, some. I think it's. A beta max, you know, the, the big pneumatic uh, 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 version of, of the shows. I don't have a machine that can play it. I'm sure somebody does. But yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Anyway, speaking to you from the Jeffrey Dahmer house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, I live in Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood home in uh, Bath, Ohio. Um, I bought it in 2005. I knew what I was getting into. Um, it's because I loved it and I still love it. It's a wonderful mid-century modern house. Yes, it has a history, but uh, there is no bad vibe here whatsoever. The only bad, bad vibe is in people's heads. And um, the only annoying thing about it is two things. First off, it's an old house, so things are in need of repair. And the other is you get people from time to time to stop and think it's their right and privilege to walk up and take pictures. And uh, 
<clears throat> you know, it's not Jeffrey Dahmer's house anymore. It's our house, it's my house. And and uh, originally got it to, to be a band house for Tin Huey because Tin Huey had reformed in roughly 2003. And the cool thing about, you know, being in a band in the Midwest, even if you're, you know, geezers like we were, is you can get a band house. You can rent a house and it can be, you know, a rehearsal place, a recording place, or a party place. But for us, it was just rehearsal and recording. And um, I I live in New York, but I was coming back and forth a lot because my mom was still here and my friends were still here. And, um, you know, um, I, I, I was able to... I was driving around with a friend and I saw this mid-century modern house and with a for sale sign. I thought, oh man, this is so cool. And I called the um, the uh, broker on, on the for sale sign and got a tour and uh, fell in love with it. And he was smart. He let me fall in love with it first. And then, you know, the next day we had a phone call where he says, you know, we're not sh sure about full disclosure. There's case law for it in Ohio and case law against it. But we're going to err on the Senate caution and tell you that this is the childhood home of Jeffrey Dahmer. And I remember driving in Bath, Ohio, on Akron Peninsula Road heading to Akron and hearing, it had to be what, 91, I think he was arrested, and hearing that uh, uh, this person had been arrested in Milwaukee, who was from the area, and that the FBI and the forensic uh, scientists um, looking for body of remains uh, were at this house in Bath. And I was shocked because, you know, this is beautiful horsey, suburban uh, country we have we're right next to a uh, national park it's um it's gorgeous and uh it's as good as ohio can can get and i thought boy you know this this crazy screwed up guy came out of this incredible environment and um how bizarre that uh, uh, I, uh a very nice house here i did not go to the house or no, I think anything about the house, but the houses that I did see were were beautiful and wonderful. So we're about to see. how did this creep get you know come come out of this beautiful supportive environment? After I found out what it was, I was you know shocked, and then I don't know in a perverse kind of way I said. It, it, it feels great. It looks great. It's in the woods. I can make noise here, not bother anybody. There's no lawn to mow. It's all it's all paths and wild trees and nature. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, it was reasonably priced. There was no screaming the great deal because of its history. Um, and there was something, you know something very Chris Butler about it. <laughs> so I said yes. And um, yeah, uh, I moved here permanently about uh, five or six years ago, gave up all my my New York uh, uh, life. Uh, but a lot, you know, a lot of people you get squeezed out of New York, or you age out of New York. Um, pretty soon you're just working for the rent. And 
you know, all the stuff that it, that it has going for it, you know, the museums and all that, you're, you know, you're not, you're not, you don't have the dough or you don't have the time to, um, um, to take part. And uh, it is a young person's uh, town when you're on, uh, when you're, when you go there to seek your fortune. And if you found a little bit of fortune, um, you're, it's not that you're not welcome. It's that, you know, it's not for you anymore. And it changes so fast and so much that, you know, easily 99% of everything I loved and moved there for is long gone. You know, restaurants closed, venues closed. Um, this is all post Giuliani, you know, and, and there is no affordable, uh, you know, I moved there in 79 and, you know, you could still get an apartment for $300 in the West Village. You know, it's a studio, it's the size of a shoebox, but hey, it's well, 300 bucks. You can make 300 bucks doing what you want to do. And there were clubs and scenes and, you know, wonderful, wonderful stuff going on on the street. And um, uh, a great, great place to be. And gradually it gets worse and worse and worse and more expensive. And, you know, one by one, the, your favorite places close. And, you know, ain't no more St. Mark Cinema, ain't no more CBGB, ain't no more, you know, your favorite uh, falafel house, gone. Uh, you know, all of 48th Street, the whole music uh, row, gone. Uh, you know, uh, a theater price up. Uh, uh, so then you try, okay, I'm going to move, you know, to Brooklyn, or I'm going to move to Hoboken. Uh, well, you know, just a I didn't even know what, what the um, Holland Tunnel is now, uh, but it's now, you know, uh, uh, the rents went up and up and uh, it's now a gated community because it costs you, what, 18 bucks to go through the tunnel to get into Manhattan? Um, I mean, you're a little better because you're in Brooklyn, right? No, I'm in Long Island. You are? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so you you know you can you can cross the, you can cross the uh, 59th Street Bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're okay, but from Jersey side, forget it, man. You know you shouldn't have a car in Manhattan anyway. What a horror. Um, mm. uh, you know. Uh, anyway, yeah, I I got squeezed out of New York, and um, it's just was no fun. It's no fun anymore for me, and and too expensive. You age out. Probably would be a good idea to move back because it probably would be a great place to live as a geezer because you get everything delivered. <laughs> you know, you will never have to never have to come out of your uh, out of your uh, uh, to get anything. But it's real good here. It's real nice here and a real good uh, uh, scene, art scene, music scene, and yeah, the house has a. The stigma, but that's somebody else's problem right now. It's a real cool, groovy house. All right. Well, thank you for joining me and talking. Thank you, Ian.